Begin quote. The world is full of friends of suicide victims thinking, if only I had made that drive over there, I could have done something. End quote. Darnell Lamont Walker, artist, writer, photographer, painter, and filmmaker. Okay, so we are continuing to discuss suicide here. We take on these tough topics, and I want to start this with a caution. We're going to open with an imagination exercise. But if you have lost a loved one to suicide, this episode, even though it could be really healing, it also could be really difficult, especially if you're raw, if you're struggling with a suicide death. Be really thoughtful about how and when you listen to this. I really want you to pay attention to your window of tolerance. And if it's too much right now, know that I respect that. And I invite you to approach this topic in a way that's right for you, maybe with help from a counselor, spiritual director, trusted friend, somebody you know, somebody you trust. Okay, so also this imagination exercise, it's going to be hard to get into if you're driving or if you're engaged in other activities, cooking, watching the kids. You can try it, but it's going to be really emotionally evocative for many people if you can get into it. And I suggest that you create a good space to really engage with this story. Okay, now I'm going to invite you to imagine. Imagine looking through your front window. You see a police cruiser pull up. One uniformed police officer gets out of the driver's seat and a woman in plain clothes gets out of the passenger seat. They slowly walk to your door. He rings the doorbell. You open the door. The officer removes his hat. He tucks it under his arm. He seems nervous. He clears his throat. The woman introduces herself. She tells you that she is the victim's assistance coordinator or something like that, some kind of language like that, for your county. She asks your name. You give it. She asks if they can come inside and talk with you. She looks at you. She says, we have very difficult news for you. Sympathy in her brown eyes. Your heart skips a beat. The officer, he looks away. He looks like he'd rather be anywhere else rather than here with you. You let them in, and by now, you're only vaguely aware of your surroundings, the shape that you left your living room in. And from her chair, in a very gentle, matter-of-fact, very calm, very professional manner, this victim's service coordinator tells you that the one you so love, the one you cherish in the world, is dead. She names the name. Yes, it's verified. Yes, there's no mistake. How, how, could, how, how could this happen, you ask? The officer explains the details of the citizen's reports called in earlier in the day. He was the first law enforcement officer on the scene. He got there just before the EMTs. He was the one that photographed the body. He was the one that took notes. He conducted the brief investigation. And then his throat catches. And there are the beginnings of tears in his eyes. He hates this part of the job. He tells a few details of the suicide scene. You need to know this, he says. I'm required to tell you. 
the woman reaches out her professional hand to you, offering her version of compassion. Dead. One you love, one you cherish is dead. Dead. Dead by suicide. Observe what's going on inside you right now. As you enter into this scene in your imagination, what's happening in your body? What's happening in your thoughts? What's happening in your emotions, your impulses, your desires? Let yourself enter into to this imagination, this experience. And now the victim's assistance coordinator is discussing a few details. Things I have to tell you, she says, standard protocols in situations like this. Something about confirming the identity in the morgue, something about an autopsy, something about who you can lean on in your support network, your family, your friends, something about how hard this all is to take in at once. Uh, and there are some government forms to fill out in a, in a very nicely designed brochure entitled Surviving the Loss of a Loved One to Suicide that you get to keep for handy reference. Do you have any questions at this point, she asks. Uh, yes, we are sure it's your loved one. The identification was really clear. There's no mistake. Stay with this experience for a minute, if you can, without losing your sense of being grounded. See if you can just accept what's going on inside. And acceptance doesn't necessarily mean endorsement. But see if you can accept what's going on inside and experience the feelings, the impulses, the assumptions, the thoughts, the beliefs, the implications, whatever is coming up as you consider an unexpected or maybe expected suicide of someone you love. Do you notice the different parts within you? Different modes of being, different modes of operating, maybe different messages coming up inside you. You may have just experienced a taste, a little sip of the cup that 300,000 parents, siblings, children, and spouses of those who die by, by suicide experience each year in the U.S. 300,000 wives, husbands, sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. 300,000 in the U.S. alone, millions worldwide. I invite you to hang on to what you learned about your reactions. Keep it in mind as we dive deep into suicide's devastating impact on those left behind. Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. Thank you for being here with me. It is good to be here with you. I'm glad we are together as we face this difficult topic of suicide. I am clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski, and you are listening to the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, where we take on tough topics. We take on the most difficult and raw themes that so many people want to avoid. 
Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, which brings the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and to the rest of the world through our website at soulsandhearts.com. This is the fourth episode in our series on suicide. In episode 76, we got into what the secular experts have to say about suicide. In episode 77, we reviewed the suicides in sacred scripture. We reviewed all the suicides in the Bible. In the last episode, episode 78, we sought to really understand the phenomenological worlds, the phenomenological worlds, the inner worlds of those who kill themselves. What happens inside? How can we understand suicidal behaviors more clearly? dispelling myths, and gripping on to the sense of desperation and the need for relief that drives so much suicidal behavior. And today, in episode 79, released on August 2nd, 2021, we will take a deep dive into the devastating impact of suicide on those left behind. We'll go deep into the internal experience of the parents, spouses, children, and siblings of those who killed themselves to see how they experience the suicide of a loved one. Alison Wertheimer, author of A Special Scar, The Experiences of People Bereaved by Suicide, said this, quote, Suicide has often far-reaching repercussions for many others. It is rather like throwing a stone into a pond. The ripples spread and spread, end quote. Now, Allison, with all due respect, I think you're totally wrong about that. It's not just ripples from a stone in a pond. For the spouses, parents, children, and siblings who are left behind to deal with the impact of a suicide, it's much more like a tidal wave resulting from an underwater earthquake than ripples from a stone. Linda Lee Landon, author of Life After Suicide, said this, which I think is much more on the money. She said, quote, Suicide creates a monstrous emotional upsurge of shame and guilt. Everyone participates in feeling responsible and even shamed at knowing the suicidal candidate, end quote. What those who attempt suicide usually don't think about is that suicide is not just an ending. It's a beginning. It's a beginning. And it's the beginning of many new things for many people. It's the beginning of new things for those left behind. So let's step back just a moment and take a little broader view. In a post at theconversation.com, dated June 12, 2018, Matthew Schmaltz, Associate Professor of Religion at the College of the Holy Cross, he argued that many of the world's religions have traditionally condemned suicide because they believe human life fundamentally belongs to God. And he goes through how in the Jewish tradition, there's this prohibition again from Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, which says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning, end quote. So life belongs to God. It's not just yours to do with as you will. Jewish civil and religious law, the Talmud, withheld from those who suicide the rituals and treatment that were given to the body in the case of other deaths. 
you couldn't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Now that's changed in in time since, but back then that was not the case. And similarly, within Catholic teachings about suicide, St. Augustine, doctor of the church, wrote that, quote, he who kills himself is a homicide, end quote. And in the Catechism of St. Pius X, that's in the early 20th century, someone who died by suicide should be denied Christian burial. Again, that's a prohibition that is no longer observed, that was done away with back in the 1980s. Father Robert Berry, in his article, The Development of the Roman Catholic Teachings on Suicide, said that, quote, the Catholic view of suicide developed in the Greco-Roman world, where suicide was quite common easily tolerated, seldom condemned or criticized, sometimes applauded, and quite frequently undertaken for the most trivial of reasons. These teachings, these Catholic teachings, developed in protest to the abuse of life manifested in this culture. So, the strong stand that Catholicism had in its earliest days was in reaction to the lax attitudes about suicide in the culture in which Christianity was growing. The Italian poet Dante Alighieri, in his poem, The Inferno, extrapolated from Catholic beliefs, writes Matthew Schmaltz, and placed those who committed the sin of suicide on the seventh level of hell, where they exist in the form of trees that painfully bleed when cut or pruned. What does Islam have to say about suicide? According to traditional Islamic understandings, those who kill themselves suffer hellfire. The hadiths or sayings attributed to the Prophet Muhammad warn Muslims against committing suicide, and in hell, they will continue to inflict pain on themselves according to whatever method of suicide they chose. In Hinduism, suicide is referred to as the Sanskrit word at-mahacha, which literally means soul murder, according to this article by Matthew Schmaltz. And what soul murder does, or what Atmahatya does, is it produces this string of karmic reactions that prevent the soul from obtaining liberation. Buddhism also prohibits suicide or aiding and abetting suicide because self-harm causes more suffering rather than alleviating it. And it also violates a fundamental Buddhist moral precept to abstain from taking life. So there are also some secular positions here. There's authors that have quotes that can come down very harsh on those who commit suicide. For example, Jeanette Walls said, when people kill themselves, they think they're ending the pain, but all they're doing is passing it on to those they leave behind. And Albert Boris, in his book, Crash Into Me, said, when you attempt suicide, the counselors try to talk you out of trying it again by asking you about other people, which is good prevention if you care about other people. And then Marsha Linehan, who wrote this in her book, Cognitive Behavioral Treatment of Borderline Personality Disorder, she, she had this pithy quote. The desire to commit suicide, however, has at its base a belief that life cannot or will not improve. Although that may be the case in some instances, it is not true in all instances. Death, however, rules out hope in all instances. We do not have any data indicating that people who are dead lead better lives. End quote. 
And even Sinead O'Connor, the Irish singer and strong writer who has a long history of acts that are hostile to the Catholic Church, she said, quote, suicide doesn't solve your problems. It only makes them infinitely, uncountably worse. So because there has been harshness, hardness, a lack of empathy towards victims of suicide in the past, it's understandable that the pendulum can swing to the other side. For example, in this Huffington Post article that is entitled Why You Should Stop Saying, quote, Committed Suicide, end quote, by Lindsay Holmes, she says that the phrase is is stigmatizing in a lot of outdated, insensitive ways. And she says also, quote, simply put, to say committed suicide conveys shame and wrongdoing. It doesn't capture the pathology of the condition that ultimately led to a death. It implies that the person who died was a perpetrator rather than a victim. There's also in this blog post called Stop Saying Committed Suicide, Say Died by Suicide Instead by Kevin Caruso. He says, criminals commit crimes. Suicide is not a crime. So stop saying committed suicide. That is a term that needs to be expunged completely. It is inaccurate. It is insensitive. And it strongly contributes to the horrible stigma that is still associated with suicide. A much better term is died by suicide. And then finally, on the website Gabriel's Light by Carol and Brandon Dealey, who lost their 12-year-old son Gabe to suicide, they said, quote, Words have power. It is important that we stop using the word committed when talking about suicide. Think about phrases like commit murder or commit adultery. The word commit harkens back to beliefs that suicide is a crime or a sin. End quote. But suicide is a sin. Now, let's just step back and think about sin here for a minute. Sin you can think of as breaking a divine law. For example, Baltimore Catechism, number three, lesson six, question 278. What is actual sin? The answer, actual sin is any willful thought, word, deed, or omission contrary to the law of God. Basically breaking the law of God. Or in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1849, sin is an offense against reason, truth, or right conscience. It is a failure in genuine love for God or neighbor caused by a perverse perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It has been defined as an utterance, deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. Okay, so we can think about this as the breaking of a law, but let's think about it a different way. Because what sin does is that it breaks relationships. And I think it's much more helpful to look at sin as either a partial or a complete rupture of a relationship. Now, Jesuit Father Andrew Hamilton in a post called Sin, the Breaking of Relationship on the IgnatianSpirituality.com website wrote this. And I think it's very to the point here. Begin quote. I think that the best images from a Christian point of view describe sin in terms of breaches of relationships between people, between people and themselves, between people and the world of which we are a part, and between people and God. All those relationships have a proper form of respect that considers all relationships and not just the ones immediately involved in an engagement. In sin, these relationships are breached by greed, arrogance, rage, resentment, contempt, fear, lack of due attention, and so on. 
Because respect is, an, is the natural expression of love, sin is always a failure to love, end quote. I think it's really interesting that Father Hamilton included this idea between people and themselves. Sin is also a breaking of relationship within the self. Remember, our Lord told us in the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. That's that's so important. And the person who takes his own life is indeed a victim, right? Lindsay Holmes in her Huffington Post article is right about that. The person who takes his own life is indeed a victim, but he's also the perpetrator. He's the one who did the killing. So he's the one who was killed. He was the victim, but he's also the one who did the killing. He's the perpetrator. He has a relationship with himself. He has a perpetrator-victim relationship with himself. And that's going to make more sense when we start talking again in the language of parts. Father Hamilton also brings up the breaking of relationships with others. He talks about sin being a lack of love, a lack of giving of oneself. And whether they want to or not, those who commit suicide, and I will use that word, break relationships with others. The one who commits suicide may not be capable, may have done it without adequate knowledge, without adequate consent, may have been sort of taken over by the intensity of his internal experience. You know, the the catechism in paragraph 2282 says that grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. So we recognize within the Catholic Church that, yes, the will can be compromised, the intellect can be compromised, but the effects are still there. There's still great harm that comes to people. And we also need to raise the question, I need to raise the question, how did that person get there? How did they get to the point where the will was so compromised, where the intellect was so compromised? I'm concerned that considering suicide as not a crime, as not a sin, and looking at it as a disease or just a condition, something that springs up, can't predict it and spontaneously, all that kind of stuff, that that is going to lead people to not do the things they need to do to keep from getting to that level of desperation. And also, I think in just the common sense, even in our culture today, even sort of the common sense of people recognize that there's something really, really wrong with suicide. For example, the case of 17-year-old Michelle Carter. You might remember this case. Back in 2014, and I'm taking this from uh, an article by Giora Bender and Louis Chiesa, The Puzzle of Inciting Suicide. And they write as follows. This is their little summary of that, that court case. Quote, in 2014, 18-year-old Conrad Roy committed suicide two years after a previous unsuccessful attempt. Police soon discovered that in the preceding week, 17-year-old Michelle Carter, who described Roy as her boyfriend, had sent him many text messages urging him to develop and carry out a plan to kill himself. Moreover, Carter had pressed Roy to proceed in a phone call when he hesitated in the very process of killing himself. And yet Carter had originally tried to talk Roy out of suicide and only changed her position after he persuaded her that nothing else could, re- could relieve his misery. 
Carter was charged with manslaughter in a Massachusetts juvenile court. The charge was upheld by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and in 2017, Carter was convicted and sentenced to a 15-month term of imprisonment. Most people recognize that Michelle Carter's actions in this case were wrong. But if suicide was not a sin, if it wasn't wrong, if it's just a choice, and according to the record, Conrad Roy had talked about you know, wanting to commit suicide. He was also vacillating at certain points. Why, if, if there wasn't a problem here, why was Michelle Carter convicted? We are going to look at the impact. We're going to look at the impact of suicide on parents, spouses, children, and siblings of those who kill themselves. Because that often gets really neglected. Like I said, the pendulum has swung. There's been a lot more empathy, a lot more understanding for those who kill themselves. But I think in all of that empathy, we can lose track of the real harm that happens, of the real wounds that are inflicted on those who care about the ones who kill themselves. Now, suicide is going to make much more sense if we understand each person, not as a uniform, monolithic, homogenous, single personality, but rather as a dynamic system, including a core self, but also these parts of us. Understanding ourselves in terms of parts helps to explain so much, including how we shift over time dynamically. All right, so let's just review quickly what are parts? What are these parts? Well, they are separate, independently operating little personalities within us, each with its own prominent needs, each with its own role in our lives, each with its own emotions, its body sensations, its guiding beliefs and assumptions, its typical thoughts, its intentions, its desires, its attitudes, its impulses, its interpersonal style, its worldview, and its own coping mechanisms. Robert Faulkner calls them insiders, but you can also think of them as separate modes of operating, if that's helpful. So these are not just transient mood states, but these are whole constellations of emotions and thoughts and body sensations and beliefs, assumptions, all that stuff that go together and they last over time, even if they may not be prominent in a person's system in a given moment. Now, it's important to remember that parts are always seeking some good for us, even when the means they use are maladaptive or harmful. And parts that are in trouble fall into three roles. Those three roles are exiles, managers, and firefighters. Now, exiles are the most sensitive. These are the parts that have been exploited, rejected, or abandoned in external relationships. They are the ones that have suffered the relational traumas or attachment injuries. And suicide is an extreme form of relational trauma. It's an extreme form of abandonment in relationship because the relationship is lost. And it can never be recovered because death has come between. Suicide can also be experienced, rightly or wrongly, as a form of rejection. You know, it may be that the person who committed suicide had no intention of harming anybody else. But still, great harm happens. Exiled parts hold the painful experiences that have been isolated from conscious awareness to protect the person from being overwhelmed with the intensity of the experience of the loss of the loved one. The grief, the pain, the loss, also the anger and resentment, and also the shame and the blame.
exiled parts desperately want to be seen and known. They want to be safe and secure. They want to be comforted and soothed. They want to be cared for. They want to be healed. They want to be relieved of the burdens that were thrust upon them by suicide. And this is true, again, whether the person who committed suicide intended harm or not, even if there was no ill will, no intention, it's still wounding. It's still harmful. These exiled parts want rescue. They want redemption. They want healing. And in the intensity of their needs and emotions, they threaten to take over. They threaten to destabilize the person's whole being. They flood us with the intensity of their experience and with the intensity of the burdens that they carry unless they are kept under control. And what are these burdens that they carry? Shame, dependency, worthlessness, fear, terror, grief, loss, loneliness, neediness, pain, lack of meaning or purpose, a a sense of being unloved and unlovable, a sense of being inadequate, a sense of being abandoned. And all of those burdens can be created or they can be exacerbated by a loved one's suicide. I mean, that's not hard to understand. And sometimes these parts are up front and center and we are consciously experiencing what they carry. And sometimes the exile that our protector parts put them into seems pretty secure. It's pretty, pretty well sealed. We're not experiencing it in the moment. It's not breaking through, but that doesn't mean that that intensity of burdens, that shame, that worthlessness, that blame, the dependency, the guilt, the grief, all that stuff, doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that we're disconnected from it in the moment. And that's got a protective function to help us survive. And who's doing the protecting? Well, there are two groups of parts that are protectors. They are the managers and the firefighters. And let's start with the managers. These are the proactive protector parts. They work really strategically. They work with forethought. They plan. They're working really hard to keep in control of situations. They're working really hard to keep managing relationships to minimize the likelihood of you being hurt. They want so much to keep you safe. And they have this never again attitude toward exiles. They're very much about reducing the risk of being overwhelmed. They control, they strive, they plan, they try to take care of things, they judge, they make demands, they can be very critical, they can be very pessimistic. These are the ones that badger and banish the exiles and they try to keep them under wraps because they can't handle the intensity of that guilt, of those burdens of shame, of worthlessness, tear, whatever came out of that suicide. And remember, you know, the suicide of a loved one, that can so confirm and strengthen the feelings of intrinsic badness or unworthiness that an exile carries, right? Somebody we know, somebody we loved, somebody we cared about killed himself. You think about the impact of that on these parts that are already carrying burdens of shame and worthlessness and guilt. That can ratchet it up. That can really exacerbate what's already there. Even if there was no wrongdoing on the part of the person toward the one that committed suicide. Well, the other kind of protector are the firefighters. And these leap into action when exiles break through. And because now these exiles are carrying this extra burden or this exacerbation of their shame and their guilt and their fear and all the things that go along with suicide, these firefighters leap up 
and it's an emergency situation. They take bold, drastic actions to stifle, numb, and distract and try to get some distance between the conscious experience and what the exile is carrying. So they don't have concern for consequences. And they can get into alcohol use, binge eating, shopping, sleeping, dieting, all kinds of excessive working or exercise, self-harm, violence, dissociation, going numb, distractions, obsessions, compulsions, escapes into fantasy, all kinds of things can happen to try to get some distance between conscious awareness and the intensity of the exile's burdens and experience. All right, so now we've got that review. Let's start looking at the impact of suicide on various types of relationships with the one who committed suicide. Well, let's look at the impact on parents first, right? So this is where a child takes his or her own life. And in a 2020 review article in the Journal of Psychosocial Nursing and Mental Health Services, Amy Evans and Kathleen Abrahamson conducted a systematic review of the literature to look at what was the impact of the public stigma on bereavement of suicide survivors. And they found that suicide survivors reported feeling shamed, blamed, and judged by other people. They perceived a general discomfort and awkwardness surrounding suicide, which contributed to, to avoidance and secrecy. And the higher perceived stigma levels were associated with global psychological distress, depression, self-harm, and suicidality, and that's in the parents, right? So, as you might expect, when you start to take a look at what does the research say, what does the literature say about suicide of a child, it has this really negative impact on the parents. Other studies have shown that families who have experienced suicide report higher levels of rejection, shame, stigma, and the need to conceal the loved one's cause of death, along with blaming. Researcher Ilana Tal in a 2017 article in the journal Death Studies said, quote, those with complicated grief after suicide had the highest rates of lifetime depression, pre-loss passive suicidal ideation, self-blaming thoughts, and impaired work and social adjustment compared to other causes of death, end quote. So let's look at like how does this impact parents? And I really think that this goes back to that fundamental problem of shame, right? It is so easy for parents to have this deep sense of shame, of having failed, of having been a bad parent. And that leads to all kinds of reactions. In a really interesting 2018 article entitled Parents' Experiences of Suicide Bereavement, a Qualitative Study, at 6 and 12 months after loss, the researchers Victoria Ross, Kyrie Colves, Lisa Kundal, and Diego De Leo found that in their research with seven mothers and seven fathers, they, these weren't couples, these were separate cases, of seven mothers, seven fathers who had lost a child to suicide, that the death of a child by suicide is a severe trauma. It increases risks of psychological and physical symptoms. I would say that it also increases the risk of internal fragmentation, of disconnection among parts. So these researchers in Australia found that there were three 
major themes in their qualitative research in terms of parents' reactions to a child committing suicide. The first was searching for answers and sense-making. The second was coping strategies and support. And the third was finding meaning and purpose. Let's just start with searching for answers and sense-making. This really all revolves around the question of why. Why did my child kill himself or herself? Why? And especially when there had been no previous indications that suicide would occur. Remember, in the last episode, episode 78, we talked about how in about 48% of cases, maybe 44, depending on the study that you're looking at, there is no indication There was no previous warning. The suicides were impulsive. There was nothing obvious to indicate that something was going wrong. No will, no suicide notes, nothing like that. Well, parents described their feelings of shock and bewilderment and reflected on the many unanswered questions about the motivations for the suicide. They don't understand what's going on. And this was a quote from a mother six months after her son died by suicide. There are times when you start to think and you think, why? I mean, we had no idea he'd ever do anything like this. We didn't think he would. He even said he would never do anything like this. And then to turn around and do it. And this is from a father six months after his son committed suicide. Quote, you question so much all the time because you're going to naturally question whether it's you whether he's in trouble at university, whether he has money trouble, maybe he was depressed, I don't know. We didn't see any signs. It would have been nice to have someone who would have had the answers to tell you the thought processes that could go on, but no one's really had any idea. Just the questions behind why. Give us some ideas why he would have done it. End quote. Parents are looking desperately in this stage for some kind of understanding of why. Their parts are searching for this. These are often manager parts because the idea is that if they knew why, they would be able to make sure that it never happened again. Well, this same article, this 2018 article by Victoria Ross and her colleagues also looked at the the coping strategies that parents whose child committed suicide, what they do. And one very common one was avoidance. For example, a father whose child died by suicide 12 months earlier said, quote, but we don't really talk about it if you mean the incident or what happened, end quote. This is manager activity. These are protectors often. If we don't talk about it, it's less likely to activate what's going on within us. We're less likely to be overwhelmed. That's the idea. That's the fantasy. That's the illusion. That manager activity, being proactive, trying to damp down anything that's going to stir up those exiles and lead them to to attempt to break out of their exile into conscious awareness. One other coping strategy that was very common was excessive drinking to avoid the pain of loss. This is from a father whose child died by suicide six months earlier. Quote, it's the weekly, everyday drinking in the week that's definitely increased. Whereas before we try not to drink for three days, but now it's definitely, it's at least one bottle to myself every night. End quote. Well, there you have what I would think is pretty obvious firefighter activity, right? That's reacting. 
using alcohol to numb the intensity of the experience. Here's a quote from a mother whose child died by suicide six months earlier. She said, quote, like I said, you know, you either collapse under the pile or you scrabble up with it. You dig in your toes and your fingernails and even your teeth if you have to just to rise above it. Now, there are also some adaptive processes that these researchers noted in parents whose children died from suicide. And these come more from the self, more engaging with internal experience. And these include things like writing letters to the children who had died, celebrating their birthdays, visiting grave sites, getting into psychotherapy or marital counseling, and finding help from support groups. And then the third major theme is finding meaning and purpose. This is a learning process, redirecting, reflecting and reevaluating their lives, changing their priorities and making contributions that are positive. What I'm going to come back to again and again is this theme of integration, the need to be in touch with all of our parts, the need for all of us to be included in our relationships among ourselves. But let's shift now to impact on the spouse. What happens when a spouse commits suicide to the other spouse? If we look at the research, what do we see? We see the strong sense of rejection and betrayal. There's broken vows. There's commitments abandoned. There's also the sense that the spouse who died by suicide could not look to me for help. I'm going to ask you, how is this not the breaking of relationship? How is this not, if we define sin as the breaking of relationship, how is this not a sin? Right? So much criticism happens within those who survive the death of a spouse by suicide. So much unspoken criticism. So many managers that are critical asking questions like this what was so wrong with our marriage that he would prefer to kill himself than to go on living with me can you see how much shame can land on those exiles and how much intensity those protectors can have within the spouse to guard against that the shame is so deeply burdensome And there can be so much frantic looking for what I did wrong in order to make sure that this never happens again. In the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry section, there was this article by Yeats Cornwell that looked at the association between spousal suicide and mental, physical, and social health outcomes. And this was a major study. It looked at 4,814 men who had lost their wives to suicide and 10,793 wives that had lost their husbands to suicide. And the major findings were as follows. Spouses bereaved by a partner's suicide had a higher risk than general population for developing mental health disorders within five years of the loss. So their risk for mental health disorders went up. Spouses bereaved by a partner's suicide had elevated risk for developing physical disorders. These are medical disorders such as cirrhosis and sleep disorders, which may be attributed to unhealthy coping styles. That was more common than in the general population. Third major finding, spouses bereaved by a partner's suicide were more likely to use more sick leave benefits, 
more disability pension funds, and more municipal support than the general population. And fourth, compared with spouses bereaved by other manners of death for a partner, those bereaved by suicide had higher risks for developing mental health disorders, suicide behaviors, and death. It's a serious impact on the spouse. Let's turn to the impact of suicide on children. Children are existentially vulnerable and they know it. It's obvious to them. And in 2010, Johns Hopkins researchers in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry found that, quote, those who lost a parent to suicide as children or teens were three times more likely to commit suicide than children or teenagers with living parents, end quote. And Dr. Harold Koppelwitz, commenting on that article, he talked about how children react to the death of a parent by suicide. And he said, quote, even more than an accidental death, a suicide generates horror, anger, shame, confusion, and guilt. All feelings that a, that a child can experience as overwhelming, right? That's what the exiles carry. He's talking about there what the exiles carry. He's talking about the horror, anger, shame, confusion, guilt. Those are all experiences that are caused by relational traumas. The trauma of losing a parent to suicide is hard to overestimate. It's easy to underestimate. It's hard to overestimate. Dr. Kulpowitz goes on, the biggest risk to a child's emotional health is not being able or encouraged to express these feelings and get an understanding of what happened that he or she can live with. Right again, what he's talking about there is exiling, right? If there's no opportunity for the child to be able to process through those emotions and children need help from the outside, it's an awful lot to expect that they're going to be able to do this all internally. If there's not help from the outside and very often there's not because so much of the attention goes to the surviving spouse, or it goes to others. Children learn to be low maintenance, to not trouble adults with the intensity of their experience. That is when we start to get into real trouble. There is some guidance that's come out from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, or the CAMH, which is Canada's largest mental health teaching hospital, and it's associated with the University of Toronto. These are the questions that the CAMH shows that children ask when a parent commits suicide. Did I do something to make this happen? Is it, is it my fault? If I'd only done what mom asked me to do, if I hadn't fought with my brothers so much, you can see these children's manager parts working overtime to try to figure out what happens so that it never happens again, right? Questions. Could I have prevented mom's suicide? What could I have done differently? Will I die by suicide too? These are the questions kids ask when a parent commits suicide. Are you going to die too? Am I going to be left alone? Asking this of the surviving parent. If I die by suicide too, will I see mom again? Sometimes suicide is, starts to be seen as an attractive option for the kids because they're seeking a reunification with the dead parent. Why am I so sad? Will I be sad forever? 
And so the researchers at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, they list these as what children experience after the death of a parent. Children feel abandoned, shocked, sad, angry, fearful, guilty, confused, depressed, anxious, and lost or empty. But I think they miss the big one. I think they miss the big one, and that is ashamed. So many kids, in an effort to try to control the uncontrollable, have a fantasy that if only they were better, this never would have happened. And there's a kind of sense of security in the fantasy of control and the illusion of control, but it's not there. It's not actually real. So damaging to kids' self-esteem because the message that can be taken in, the way that these exiles can construe the experience of a parent suicide is something like, I was not worth living for. Mommy did not think that I was worth living for. Daddy did not love me. I'm unlovable. If daddy would have loved me, he would never have done this. Let's look at the impact of uh, suicide on siblings. In a national public radio uh, show on August 25th, 2017, Taylor Porco describes how when her brother Jordan died by suicide, he was older than her. She said, quote, I was really depressed and in such extreme pain. Nothing, literally nothing mattered to me after he died. All I wanted was my brother back. I never loved someone as much as I loved him. End quote. Siblings have these deep, mutually protective bonds. They have the shared experience of having the same parents. And psychotherapist Leah Royden in a Psychology Today article that was posted on February 15th, 2019, she described how she lost her brother to suicide when she was 21 years old. And she said, it's confusing, it's painful, it's hard, with more challenges than normal bereavement. She talked about how there's this marked sense of guilt and responsibility around the death, around the death. And remember, that guilt, that responsibility is carried by the exiles, but it can also be carried by the managers. Managers often feel really guilty about not having prevented the death. And going back to the quote with which we opened by Darnell Lamont Walker, he said, remember, the world is full of friends of suicide victims thinking, if only I had made that drive over there, I could have done something. There's often this intense anger stemming from a deep sense of rejection and abandonment. This is in siblings again. This is exiles, but also firefighters. Sometimes that anger is protective. Sometimes that anger can defend against the grief and loss that would overwhelm the person, that would overwhelm the sibling if it were allowed to come to the surface. Sometimes there's this anxiety and fear Right. What if I were to commit suicide too? Siblings suffer intensely. And what Leah Royden says is that 
siblings also tend to suffer invisibly because the attention tends to go to the parents. A 1992 dissertation by Ariate Rakic said that surviving siblings, quote, often find themselves not only neglected, but expected to put their needs aside in order to spare their parents further distress. End quote. She found that even though there were many demographic similarities, the sibling survivor group was operating well below their potential. And while other bereaved siblings were taking positive active steps to a secu- toward a secure future, these were the siblings of those that had died by accidents or through other means, quote, all the siblings in the suicide group envisioned a narrow range of possibilities for success and blamed themselves for the decisions and choices that proved to be detrimental to their lives, end quote. In other words, the siblings of those who had committed suicide were significantly less resilient. Part of the concern that psychotherapist Leah Royden has is that usually there's no space to talk about suicide within the family once a sibling has died. And there's often nowhere to talk about it outside either. Now, what I would add is that often there's no place to have an internal dialogue with our own parts about suicide without help from the outside. If the family has brought this cone of silence over the death, over the suicide death of one of its members, that can be extremely oppressive and it can lead us to not be able to work through things very well. Thus, what Leah Royden says is that suicide can cast a very long shadow, affecting the sibling's sense of security in the future in relationships and in life itself, end quote. However, the good news is that many siblings eventually create meaningful, purposeful lives out of this emotional nightmare with a greater sense of perspective and empathy. Finally, I want to talk about the impact of suicide on the church, on the mystical body of Christ. This is from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We're all members of one body. And in verse 26, St. Paul goes on to say, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You know, as Catholics, we are all in relationship with one another. If one of us dies by suicide, it's not just some isolated choice made by a separate person with no impact. We are all part of the same body, the mystical body of Christ. So there's a real loss there. We're going to pursue what a compassionate response is to suicide in our next episode. That's going to wrap it, I think, for this brief series on suicidality. A few action items here. If you're having suicidal thoughts or if you know of someone who is, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. There you can get support and assistance from a trained counselor. 
If there's immediate danger, call 911. I'm going to invite you to subscribe to this podcast. If you are into this podcast, if you like it, well then go ahead and like it on social media, but also leave reviews on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast platform you use. I'm going to remind you that we have conversation hours every Tuesday and Thursday during this month of August. And that's at my cell phone, 317-567-9594. Call me those Tuesdays and Thursdays in August, anytime between 4.30 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I would love to connect with you. There, We do have a Catholic's Guide to Helping a Loved One in Distress. That is a free video course that we offer. And it gets into a lot of ways in which you can help loved ones who are experiencing distress. That's not specifically about suicide, and it doesn't address suicide prevention directly, but there's still a lot of great ideas in there if you're really interested in how to be helpful to someone who is struggling. I'm also going to mention the Resilient Catholics community that grew up around this podcast. If you really resonate with this idea of parts and with this explanation about how we are inside, a sense that we have this unity, but we also have this multiplicity. If you're really into that and you want to learn much more about human formation from a Catholic understanding, by all means, get on the waiting list. Go to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC and get on the waiting list. That way you'll get updates about the community and you'll be the first to know how to join it once it reopens in December. Finally, I'm going to ask you to continue to pray for me and to continue to pray for each other. There is this community around this podcast, and it is great to be with you. I thank you for being here with me. And with that, we'll go ahead and invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Pray for us.